You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown on 3CR, and a big thank you to the Climate Action Show. I'm Judith Peppard, and I'll be taking you through for the next half hour. It's another coolish day here in Nam, and I hope you're keeping warm and finding things to do to stimulate you during this latest lockdown. The libraries are doing click and collect now, so that's a bonus for people who read. At least we can get books out. And here at 3CR, everyone's working hard to keep you entertained and informed. So a big shout out to all the great staff here who just keep things moving along. 3CR is broadcasting from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. True owners and caretakers of this land, we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty has not been ceded. Today on Communication Mixdown, We're going to be looking at Sharia law, with a focus on what's happening in Afghanistan. Over the past few weeks, we've seen the heartbreaking images of the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban and the desperate attempts of many to leave the country. The people of Afghanistan, and especially the women, are wondering what Taliban rule will bring. When asked about the rights of women, a spokesperson said the Taliban would not discriminate. Women would have their rights within the bounds of Sharia. But what does that mean? My guest today is Suleya Keskin, an Associate Professor in Islamic Studies at Charles Sturt University. She's co-authored a paper for the conversation entitled Explainer, What is Sharia Law and What Version of It is the Taliban Likely to Implement? I spoke with Suleya on Friday and began by asking what Sharia law actually is and how it came about. The Sharia law is also known as Islamic law. It's really an interpretation of the Quran, which is a holy book for Muslims, and the Hadith, which is Prophet Muhammad's narrations. Sharia or Islamic law is an attempt to interpret what's written in those books. And so you can think of Sharia as a way of life. It's about the worship aspect. It's about social justice aspect, person, life, spirituality. So it actually covers a whole range of areas. During Prophet Muhammad's time when he was living, he receives this revelation, the Quran, revealed over a period of 23 years. And he's amongst his people, what we call the companions, a bit like the disciples of Jesus. They've embraced this new religion and they're trying to, I guess, live their life now based on the guidelines and the rulings of this new religion. And so as part of that, there are a number of modifications that they make to their life, like they start to pray five times a day, they stop drinking alcohol. So they really transform their lives with the intention of getting closer to God. And so if there's something that they're uncertain about, they would normally ask Prophet Muhammad, okay, what about in this scenario? What do we do? But then when Muhammad passed away, there was not that reference point. So what they then had to do is 
work out a system where by looking at the Quran, by looking at the Hadith, work out what do we do in these different scenarios. It came about post-Muhammad's time with this intention of documenting how one should live their life according to Islam. And that's where the word Sharia came through. And a number of scholars started to undertake this process of codifying, documenting, putting it into volumes, a bit like law books of today. So just giving guidelines in so many various areas. And those books have existed for 1400 years and they've been looked at or reapproached throughout history. So that's really how it started. So what we're talking about is a group of people who are interpreting the sayings of the prophet and creating something called Sharia or Islamic law. That's right. The sayings of the prophet and the Quranic verses, because just with the Quran, it doesn't explicitly always give you instructions on how to do things. So for example, Quran talks about five daily prayers, but it doesn't go into the details of how that's got to be done. But Muhammad through his life, by practicing it and by how he practiced it being documented, the scholars would look at both the Quran and the Hadith to work out, all right, this is how it's done. This is how many times it's got to be done. So both of them come hand in hand, the Quran and the Hadith. I guess within Islam, there would be debates about some of those interpretations. Absolutely. And with the Hadith, it's basically what the Prophet Muhammad said, and then other people hearing it. Sometimes you have two, three generations pass before it gets documented. So there's a room for human error when you're talking about the Hadith. Uh, there's been a lot of questions about, well, is this really authentic? Did he really say this? It really does open it up to scrutiny. And I think that's a healthy thing. Like other religions, debates and interpretations vary. I'm just wondering, how did the law that was created compare with some of the alternatives in the 7th, 8th, 9th century? The Islamic civilization was probably at its peak between the 8th to the 12th, 13th century, advanced with technology, economy and knowledge. And this showed in the way that Islamic law or Sharia was understood for its time, quite sophisticated for the times particularly for women, compared to opportunities they had in other societies or pre-Islam, they were quite empowered and had the opportunity to educate themselves and to be an important part of society. Given that sophistication, and obviously many scholars working on this, and of course there's documents, particularly in Spain, where scholars from different backgrounds came together, Islamic and Christian and Jewish, to exchange their scholarship. It was developed. So, so what happened? The advancement of sophistication we saw with the Sharia is very much correlated with where the Islamic civilizations were at the time. It was considered the golden age for Muslims. And scientifically, especially, there was huge advancements that happened. But then, like all civilizations, the Islamic civilizations declined. And particularly in the 18th, 19th century, when a civilization declines, its ability to develop knowledge, critical thinking, drastically drops. You could see that this was manifest in the Islamic law as well. Also, going back to the 11th, 12th century, as mentioned in the article, it was so systemized, the Islamic law, by the 11th, 12th century that some scholars were of the view, look, we've coded it all pretty much. We've documented everything. We've got volumes and volumes. It's all been set out. The future generations don't need to do anything. 
there was that kind of thinking. It's known as the ijtihad. Ijtihad means interpretation of the Islamic law. Door in their mind should have been closed because it's all been done. But society changes. And when society changes, you've got to revisit some of the rulings, whether it's women's presence in society or how you interact with other faiths. You need to keep revisiting them. So I think it was somewhat naive to think that you wouldn't have to revisit Islamic law. So that was a big factor in why we see its decline. But also what we see in the 20th century is a lot of Muslim countries were colonized and there were new laws that were set into these countries almost overnight. Any affiliation of those governments with Islam were scrapped. This kind of put the Islamic scholars to the periphery of society. They didn't have that support, that presence within society to develop it because they could not apply it. Those opportunities for talking, discussion, like you mentioned, for scholars to come together to talk about them, debate about them, that kind of environment was not there anymore in the 20th century. This gives an opportunity for people to stand up and say, look, we don't have any leadership in this space, I'll be the leader. There was a vacuum. And that's where you have groups like ISIS that do come up and they say, well, no one's really doing what's needed for the Muslim world, we'll do it which is a very dangerous position to be in. But it also draws a lot of people in, sadly, because it gives them hope. That was particularly the case maybe three, four years ago with ISIS. But now that a lot of people have seen the dark side of ISIS, they realise that it's far from being anything Islamic. And if you've just joined us on Communication Mixdown, I'm speaking with Suleyha Keskin, an Associate Professor in Islamic Studies at Charles Sturt University. Zuleya has explained how Sharia law evolved during the golden age of Islam and that it was very progressive for its time, but that the closure of debate in the 12th century prevented Sharia from adapting to new social and technological developments. And finally, colonization led to even further decline and there was a vacuum where groups like ISIS could come in and interpret Sharia in ways that bear little resemblance to the principles that Sharia originally stood for. In their paper, Zuleya and Dr. Mehmet Olzalp describe three contemporary Muslim views on Sharia. The first is that it's just no longer applicable or useful. The second, the ultra-conservative view, is that it's perfect and modern societies should go back to it, a view held by less than 1% of the world's 1.1 billion Muslims. And a third view, which proposes that committees of Islamic scholars, alongside scientists and sociologists, should examine Sharia law and bring it up to date, consistent with the contemporary world. I asked Suleha where she would fit within this framework. I would fit into the third category. The thing is, I do understand that there is a lot of negative affiliations with the word Sharia. Actually, just as a side note, one of my classes that I teach Islam in the modern world, which is predominantly Muslim students, I asked, would you want Sharia? And about 70 to 80% of them said that they would not want Sharia. It's not just the West that has this negative connotations around Sharia, but Muslims do as well. So it's kind of like this word I feel that's been hijacked by extremists, and it's very hard to claim back. So even when I say, yes, I do think Sharia is adaptable to today's time, I would just reword that and say, I think that the Islamic way of life, it's possible to adapt it to today's life, but we need to revisit some of the rulings or some of the interpretations that are there, especially around technology, women, and just society in general, because it's really the underlying principles that are more important. They are possibly applicable to different settings, different times. 
but it really needs knowledge and skills and expertise to be able to do that. What are some of the principles? Freedom of speech is one of them. Freedom of religion is another one. Freedom of lineage. You know, everyone has the right to have offsprings and continue their lineage. And just thinking of freedom of speech, for example, that's probably an area that we're seeing a huge struggle in the Muslim world. Because if anyone says anything, there's a huge crackdown on them. They could be jailed or they could even be killed for saying something against their government. Muslim governments using religion as a tool for the purpose of their power. And that doesn't help with the image of Islam either. You've talked about some of the positive principles that are there that underpin Sharia, at least originally, and then some of the reasons things aren't what they should be. How do you feel as a Muslim yourself? about the actions of the ultra-conservatives. How do you feel when you hear those stories? To be honest, this is the other challenge. If you were to ask me, do you see a country, especially Muslim countries, that you think best reflect uh, Islamic law, I couldn't show you one. I wouldn't be able to show you one. And there are some that do worse than others, such as Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Pakistan's not the best either. But then there are others that are probably doing better, but there is room for improvement like Malaysia and Indonesia. When you see countries who are using Islam as a way to push their agenda of power, it has a very big damaging effect on the religion. And not only does the non-Muslims look at it foreignly, but also Muslims get cold or distant from that religion because they think that's not what I want in Islam. I remember not too long after 9-11, whether it was a year or a couple, I was living in Adelaide at the time and I was in Rundle Mall, which is a sort of shopping area. And there was a young man there all by himself with a sign saying, Islam is about love. And uh, I thought, amazing courage, amazing frustration. <laughs> I was able to go up to him and say, yes, I know that. But I didn't know what else I could say. I just really admired his courage at that moment. It's heartbreaking. It's sad. And particularly, I do feel, especially when they explicitly use the religion, and ISIS did this a lot, they were probably a bit more cunning, making sure they used Islamic terminology when they were doing horrendous crimes. And this would frustrate me because I could see they were cherry picking what they wanted to justify what they were doing. But it worked also because Muslims who aren't that knowledgeable about their religion, because they were hearing Islamic narratives, they were being sucked into it. So I find it very disheartening, devastating, because to me, Islam is not that. And it just seems so distant to what I think Islam teaches and the peace and the serenity that this religion can bring. And then you have this portrayal, which is completely opposite to my understanding of Islam. It, it can be tiring, Judith, it really can, because we're expected as Muslims to constantly condemn terrorism. And you have two schools of thought on this uh, amongst Muslims. Some would say, oh, look, I didn't commit that crime. And then there are others where I probably sit on more so, where people that genuinely don't know the difference between these acts taken by groups like ISIS and what Islam teaches. So it needs that constant reiteration, constant repetition that this isn't Islam, they don't represent who I am. I condemn terrorist attacks. Uh, so there's this ongoing uh, repetition that you do need to do. But, you know, if you listen to the 11 o'clock press conferences, they constantly get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. It seems as human beings, we need that repetition to reinforce something, especially when we're hearing other things. So I do understand people's genuine concerns or uncertainty or question marks on the matter. Uh, but as Muleims, it can be quite exhausting. Suleha Keskin. 
Associate Professor in Islamic Studies at Charles Sturt University, talking about the paper that she co-authored with Dr. Mehmet Ozelp. Explainer, what is Sharia law and what version of it is the Taliban likely to implement? And we speak more about what we might expect from the Taliban after these messages. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. You're on 3CR. The show is Communication Mixdown. I'm Judith Peppard, and so happy to have your company today. And my guest on the show today is Zuleha Keskin, an associate professor in Islamic studies at Charles Sturt University. And she's explained to us the background to Sharia law and what's happened to it in the hands of groups like ISIS. And now we look a bit more at what we might expect from the Taliban in Afghanistan. And really, it's not at all clear. They've changed, which is very interesting. But will they lapse back to the way they were 20 years ago? And so what do you think will happen? I mean, what are the options for the Taliban? There's two things. They might come down with the iron fist and really go back to controlling the society that they live in, back to the barbaric understanding of Islamic law. But there are signs that they're not as bad as they used to be. And I think they've got a better awareness of society now. They're using technology much more than what they were. So there is hope that they may have developed. That's why I do argue with Dr. Mehmet that their stance won't be as barbaric as it was 20 years ago, considering the country's been in war for 40 years, considering that there's pressures of ISIS. Now we're talking about ISIS-K. These pressures will affect their thinking, their judgment, and what is to come. Say if it's women's rights, they, they decide to do something about that. You know, how broad will their influence be across the country? That's a good point, because there's early signs that they're being a bit more tolerant. They said that they will allow girls to go to school. 
it's a big country. So the Taliban probably will be quite broad in their spectrum as well. Some will be on board with that narrative, whereas others will be more conservative, especially in rural places. So we're not going to see an application of whatever law they're thinking equally across the country. Their use of Sharia could be a genuine but yet naive approach. They don't have these scholarly people that have come through because the country's been at war for 40 years. But at the same time, they also have to think about security, uh, about all these other countries said that are pressuring and wanting an influence on the country. And that will naturally affect it too. And we're talking about countries like Pakistan, even China, Russia, and US is left, but they will try to. So in a way, I feel like Afghan is like this chess game and everyone's doing these moves, including Saudi Arabia and UAE. Everyone wants a part of it. And that plays out in very complex ways. We're not always aware of what's happening behind the scenes. So a bit more reading on, you know, the different aspects of what's happening. It does shed a bit more light on Afghanistan and why it is the way it is. Yes, and I imagine there are a lot of mining interests that are eyeing up the country enthusiastically. That's right, the mining and the opium production. It's, you know, who buys the opium? It's a lot of the Western countries are buying it. So that's supporting. And where do they get the weapons? There's all these questions that need to be considered. Suleha Keskin. And before we finished our conversation, I wanted to find out more about Suleha's own academic history. She began with a degree in pharmacy. So I asked her how she moved from pharmacy to Islamic studies. When I finished year 12, like a lot of 18-year-olds, I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life. I did like science and I found myself studying pharmacy. And then I did finish pharmacy and I actually practiced as a pharmacist for about 10 to 15 years. And so what brought you to Islamic studies? Being a Muslim who was born in Australia, I always did see that there was a lot of misinformation about Islam in the wider community. I went to public school where there were probably two or three Muslims and I would get all sorts of questions. And this was particularly around Gulf War. So September 11 hadn't happened then. Iranian revolution's impact was being being talked about. So I was being asked questions about Sharia back then. We're talking in the 80s. I guess I found myself having to understand my religion at probably a very young age in high school. And then when I was about 17, I got my own kind of awakening because until then I was a Muslim because my parents were Muslim. I was fasting because my parents told me to fast. But you get to an age or a point where you think, do I really want to do this? Am I doing it for other people or do I really want to do this? And I think when I was about 17 or 18, I started questioning things and then finding answers. And I guess embraced Islam more consciously. And for me, it brought a lot of peace in my life. It just really saddened me that it had such a negative image outside in a wider community. So I ended up giving a lot of classes in the local mosque at the time. I got immersed in knowledge quite early on. And then I thought, I'll do my Master of Islamic Studies. That was my first step. I finished that. Then I thought, oh, maybe I'll do a PhD now. (laughs) What did you do your PhD in? What was the topic? I did my PhD on Inner Peace. It actually got published as a book about two, three days ago, Judith. So Attaining Inner Peace in Islam is the title of the book. Really looks at what is it from an Islamic perspective that helps to attain inner peace. That was my area of interest, my passion. So that's what I wrote my PhD on. I've associated mysticism, which I guess is different from inner peace, but I link the two with the Sufi tradition. Uh, So I always thought the Sufis were more the mystical part of Islam, but I may be wrong about that. What do you say? They are. So inner peace as a discipline would fall under Islamic spirituality. So if we're talking with regards to disciplines or sub-disciplines, Sufism slash mysticism is 
a big part of the Islamic tradition. I guess Islam generally does, but Sufism particularly, that relationship with God, connection with God, so that's a big part of Sufism. And there's a strong emotional aspect of it, which appeals to a lot of people. It appeals to me as well. And of course, uh, the writing of Rumi, the poetry of Rumi is very popular across the world. Yeah, apparently it's the most read poetry in US. I'm not sure if that's still the case. His poetry is timeless, which can open it up to different interpretations or understandings. Um, And I think people like like that because they personalize it for their own lives. And you know what? Rumi is originally from Afghanistan. Afghanistan is quite well known for its poetry. Rumi has a strong place in that region. But he actually died in Turkey. So my ethnic background is Turkish. Each side claims him. They say, oh, he's Afghan. We say, no, he's Turkish. He's buried in Turkey. (laughs) Yeah. And and of course, I always think of Iran. Yes. His writings are mainly in Farsi, uh, Persian. Historically, Iran and Afghanistan were very close. And they still got very similar traits to each other. It's rich history, amazing history. And that's why history is important. You made that point before. Knowing history is so important. Zuleya Keskin. Associate Professor in Islamic Studies at Charles Sturt University. And big congratulations to Saleya on her book, Attaining Inner Peace in Islam, that was published just a few days ago, and I had no idea when I called her to ask if she could join us on the show. And I'll put a link to her paper, Explainer, What is Sharia Law, and What Version of It is the Taliban Likely to Implement, on the Communication Mixdown website. We're coming to the end of Communication Mixdown. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. I'm going out with Turini by Fatumata Diawara. Take care and stay safe. Until next time.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.